sense of direction for up and down. I uh, couldn't believe it. Driving up a hill, I was applying the brakes. Driving down the hill, I was accelerating. I had lost my equilibrium. Uh, it was very frightening. Something happened in my spatial orientation. I, there's a word for it, and I, I just cannot remember what that is, but that just threw me right off. And as soon as we found a place to pull over, we did, and we stayed the night and went on in the morning. Some time ago, a passenger plane went down in Peru. The uh, pilot's instrumentation went out on him, and he talked to the control tower. He kept asking for orientation, orientation. Where am I? Where am I? He lost his orientation to up and down. And eventually the plane crashed, unfortunately, killing himself and 70 passengers. We lose our orientation. Happens in real life, doesn't it? Daniel chapter 4 uh, is an illustration of getting disoriented. It's kind of a strange chapter, I have to admit. Uh, it brings us up real close to the intersection of pride and brokenness. And at that intersection, you have to make a decision as to which road you're going to take. Are you going to take the humble road? Are you going to take the prideful road? Uh, if you've joined us recently here at uh, Terwilliger, uh, we're in a series of messages called Against All Odds, and we've been looking at various biblical characters, including uh, Daniel. And so we're in the book of Daniel this morning. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar really is our focus this morning, and he comes to this intersection in his life where his heart has been filled with incredible pride. He, he is the king, the leader uh, of uh, the Babylonian Empire. He has just conquered Judah. He has taken a bunch of young men uh, from Judah into uh, Babylonia, and he is training them in his court, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, four of his stars. Uh, and it's interesting how the king even seems to be the writer of this chapter because it's written in the first person. Verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity, written in the first person. And, but you have to say, wow, look at you, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you've got it made. He, I was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. It's kind of a tragic story. It has a good ending, but it's a sad story of learning the lesson of humility. And when you think about it, one has to give full marks uh, for the king on being so vulnerable on his own life, as we'll be reminded in the text. I mean, he told his story. So this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar's story. It's the testimony of what God did in his life. And when it happened... It seemed like Nebuchadnezzar wanted the world to know. And I, I really think this time it was an authentic turnaround in his life. It would appear that uh, things were going pretty well for the king and then the dream. So look at, let's look at it. First of all, the dream. In the midst of his prosperity, a dream came to him which was about to change his life. I mean, it's true, isn't it? One phone call, 
one unsuspecting conversation, and life is different. Uh, three minutes at the end of a hockey game, <laughs> and a storm cloud and gloom comes over the whole city of Edmonton. It just, it just appears. One of the great hockey players of the game, Sidney Crosby, was sidelined this week because of another hit to the head and because of the history of concussions that he's had. Uh, I'm not sure, did he even play last night? Uh, was he, he was on? Okay, I wasn't following last night. But uh, things can change in an instant. They did for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar called in the brain trust of his court and nobody could interpret his dream. Of course. But he knows Daniel and he knows, da he knows that Daniel has something special in his life. I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. And so this dream featured a great tree. Just remember, as the previous dream had features this great statue. And Nebuchadnezzar saw this tree grow and grow and grow until it reached the heavens and it was visible for the whole earth to see. It was a, it was a thing of great beauty. And its fruit was abundant and tasty. And it was so huge that it gave protection to the beasts of the field and lodging to the birds of the air. It was an impressive, impressive tree. And the king said, while I was looking at this massive tree, there was a messenger that came down from heaven and who gave a very forceful command, cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze. Now, this is a picture of destruction, but not completely. The stump and the roots were not to be uprooted, giving hope that the tree might one day be revived. Now, if you're following this morning, we're in Daniel chapter 4, and I hope you'll follow with me. It's easy to miss the transition in verse 15. Uh, the, the stump becomes a person. The stump becomes a person. The second half of verse 15. Now, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Uh, so from a neutral object, a stump to a person, this is now personal. Let him live with the animals, let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. And now look at verse 16. And let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Now, most translate that as seven years. Till seven years passed. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw this vision, he saw this dream, and he heard what the angel said, and he knew in his heart that this came from the Most High God. Now, poor Daniel, he has to give the interpretation of this dream because it is absolutely terrifying to the king. What is this all about? 
I remember a young man came into my office uh, some years ago in a huge, huge emotional crisis. And when he was able to settle down just to talk, I mean, he just rushed in the building, uh, brought him right to my office, and uh, he was in such turmoil that he couldn't talk. Uh, he explained that he'd been in a terrible car crash. And I said, oh, how are you? He said, no, I'm fine. I'm fine physically. Uh, but he said the person in the other car was seriously injured. Uh, and that, of course, he, he was the cause of it. And it had just happened. And he, he, he left the scene of the accident after the police came, and he came right to my office. And he was so emotionally spent that he just, virtu he just, he just collapsed. And uh, uh, he talked a little bit, and then I noticed him going strangely silent. And as I think back now, he was probably going into shock. And so that was Nebuchadnezzar. He was, he was kind of in, in shock. He said, the dream frightened me. I had visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. He said, Daniel, now you have to tell me what this means. So secondly, the interpretation. It appears that Daniel was also in a bit of a shock after he heard the dream. I mean, I think it caught him off guard, knowing that he had a tough assignment uh, to go face to face with the king and honestly tell him what it meant. And the king noticed his hesitation. He said, no, no, you go ahead and you say what you have to say. And Daniel says, I wish I didn't have to tell you this. Did you ever have to brace yourself for tough news? You knew it was coming. You knew somebody was going to say some tough things to you. Did you ever have to deliver tough news that you knew would really rock the boat of the person you had to say it to? Did you ever have to share tough words with your kids? <laughs> Sometimes that can be hard. King, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. And your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. King, the messenger is speaking to you. You will be cut down and only a stump will be left. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like cattle and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven and that will last for seven years years until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of humanity. And the stump is a reminder that your kingdom will re be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Oh my. How hard to say something like that. Uh, did Daniel say to himself, oh did I get this right? Did I interpret this properly? Did I, did I hear from God and did, did God give me the words? That, did I say the right words that God intended? No, there's no hint of that at all. He wasn't second-guessing himself. It was very hard to give the message. You're going to lose your mind? <laughs> How do you tell somebody that? You're a great man, but God's going to humble you until you learn that you're not the greatest a woman uh, visiting in Switzerland came to a sheepfold on one of her daily walks. And venturing in, she saw the shepherd seated on the ground with his flock around him. 
Nearby on a pile of straw lay a single sheep which seemed to be suffering. Its leg was broken. And she asked the shepherd how that happened. He said, well, I broke it myself. He said it sadly. And then he explained. He said, of all the sheep in my flock, this one was the most wayward. It would not obey my voice, and it would not follow when I was leading the flock. On more than one occasion, it wandered to, to the edge of a perilous uh, cliff. And not only was it disobedient itself, but it was leading other sheep astray. So based on my experience with this kind of sheep, I knew I had no choice, so I broke its leg. The next day, I took food, and it tried to bite me. After letting it alone for a couple of days, I went back, and it not only eagerly took the food, but it licked my hand and showed every sign of submission and affection. The shepherd said, when this sheep is well, it will be the model sheep of my entire flock. No sheep will hear my voice so quickly, nor follow so closely. Instead of leading others away, it will be an example of devotion and obedience. In short, a complete change will come into the life of this wayward sheep. It will have learned obedience through its sufferings. And God would deal with Nebuchadnezzar in a similar way. But at the end of seven years, the sentence would be lifted. Uh, you'll notice for verse 27 is a word that Daniel adds. <coughs> it's not part of the interpretation, but it's a word that Daniel adds, and it's part of his heart. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. King Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you don't need to go through all of this. Maybe you could save yourself a lot of pain. And if you just stop right now, maybe, maybe God would turn this thing around. Uh, and we move past an important verse here, verse 25. This really is the heart of the whole chapter. Let me read it for us. Seven periods of time, seven years will pass while you live this way. Until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. What's this all about? It's about learning and obedience. Until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Did you know that God's interested in teaching you? He gives us many lessons in life. And his intent is not to injure us or chastise us or set us aside. But he wants us to learn. What does he want us to learn? Well, he wants us to learn that, that, he, that he really wants to use us, that he really wants us to be productive in life. He really wants us to learn that we can bear much fruit for him and his kingdom. And so he teaches us. He's teaching you. He's teaching me. And it's hard when the lessons are tough. Here's one of those lessons. Our, one of the lessons is that our smarts and our abilities and our accomplishments do not ultimately provide our security. 
He wants us to learn that. Probably you've already learned that. And maybe just need a little reminder from time to time. This is, of course, a very difficult truth for a proud and powerful man like Nebuchadnezzar. But it might not be easy for us either. Independence and self-reliance become the idols of our pursuits. There is something in us that that calls out that we want to be self-made men and women. We want self-sufficiency. We want autonomy. We want control. From our youngest years, we're taught that. Take charge. Work hard. Be the masters of our faith. Kind of get a step ahead of the other guy. Don't tell him, but get a step ahead of the other guy. And if you succeed, you can control your destiny. We're trained towards self-sufficiency. Stand on your own feet. Now, some of that's good. But there is a place where we cross over the line. And we think, we're it. We can do this better than anybody else. We don't need anybody. We're the captain of our lives. And that spirit of independence even blocks out our God. Anything wrong with striving for excellence? No, not at all. God expects us to make the best use of our gifts. He gives us. But we should remember they are gifts. They are talents. They're the brains that he's given us. They're the opportunities. But they mean nothing apart from God's provision. Oh, but when we get it wrong, when we think that we are the sole cause of our success, we, we get in a long line of people due for a wake-up call. And that's where God is to teach us. And the king thought his power and his wisdom and his achievement were a protective wall against all the insecurities that would come his way. And God broke down every one of those walls. We can never come to the place where we have ultimate control over our lives. We were never meant to. God always wants us to stay humble and dependent and in communication with him asking for the next step, for the next step, for the next step. And so the dreams, first thirdly, the dreams fulfillment. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, this is verse 28 to 30, Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Oh, and don't you just want to cringe. Careful. Careful what you say. That sounds very arrogant. I mean, it was a great city. It was fantastic. The Hanging Gardens, the famed Ishtar Gate, opened into the processional way, an elaborately ornamented street leading to the Temple of Marduk, one of 50 temples within the city. Surely it was a magnificent place, those Hanging Gardens, one of the great wonders of the world. But all you want to say, be careful. Whoever you are, king of Babylon or modern-day man or woman, be careful of your own self-sufficiency because God can blow it away in a split second. 
And he did. Verse 32. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the field with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. So for seven long years, this man lived in a state of virtual amnesia. Reclusive, hair was long as eagle's feathers, his nails were like bird claws. Somehow the name Howard Hughes comes to mind. And I'm not going to elaborate, it's a very difficult picture. I can't imagine the humility, the, the, the indignity. But those seven years, the, the great king was reduced to an animal. You know, some, some tender hearts are broken so easily. They're so soft, they break so easily. And others become hard and calloused, and God knows how long and the depths it takes to break us and to bring us to our knees. Some on that journey become so proud that it takes radical intervention. Nebuchadnezzar thought his great power would make him sovereign. God showed him otherwise. God merely touched his mind, and he was done. Just a touch, and he was done. The problem with human wisdom is always its limits. Nebuchadnezzar's wise men could not answer all his questions. Nor can our wise men. I mean, the best of the best in our professional world today, they don't have all the answers. Economically, we say the Great Depression could not occur again. But we've had 2008. And the world is always fragile. There are millions starving in East Africa right now. It hardly gets on the news these days. Nations are always fragile. It's humbling to read a passage like this because it sets the world in perspective. We may be tempted to believe that our security is due to our efforts. We've done it. But it's not the whole picture. We must remember how it all unfolded. That we just happened to be in the right place at the right time, perhaps. Or maybe somebody opened a door for us. Or maybe somebody put in a good word for us. Or, or maybe we grew up in a family that opened some doors for us. And Nebuchadnezzar's life teaches us that God alone is in ultimate control. But he also teaches us that God must give what we cannot gain. God must give what we cannot gain. That verse, remember, says the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. So God gives his kingdom. God gives his blessing. God gives his leading to whoever he wills. God provides as he determines best. The Lord uses our obedience to bless us, but he's not obligated by our obedience to grant us earthly success. He gives to whoever he wills. So if you're richly blessed this morning, you know where it came from. And if you're in a place of great authority today, you know where it came from. Our call is to be obedient and faithful. His sovereignty says, this is how I will work. 
Although it's difficult to confess that we're not really in charge of our lives, it's a good confession. And it's one that transparency requires. Well, the last verses are wonderful. They're really wonderful because it's been a kind of a tough chapter. Nebuchadnezzar is restored. Isn't that awesome? And I think if you read these verses carefully, you see the heart of a broken man who now acknowledges that God is the sovereign Lord of his life. Yes, I really think he had a deep change of heart. I think he has become a worshiper of, of, of the God of heaven. And what marvelous praise he gives to God. After this time had passed, now in the first person again here, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases. Wow, this is Nebuchadnezzar. What's happened to him? What could be more beautiful than restoration and healing and growing and a brand new start? Uh, yesterday was a good experience of uh, being with uh, some long-lost family members uh, at kind of a family gathering out in Stettler, Alberta. And uh, it was part of the McDonald family that we probably haven't seen very much. And you know, the generations grow up, and you, you, you may know the cousins, but you don't know the second cousins and down. And uh, so there were most of the people we were kind of getting introduced to. And one young woman uh, stood up to sing. She sang beautifully. She sang from her heart. And afterwards, as we talked to her, she's a graduate of McEwen Nursing. But she said, I'm a cancer survivor. And you could just tell that God had done something in her life in a marvelous way. Shaped her heart. Beautiful heart. Beautiful heart. A few years ago, a young pastor, fresh out of seminary, was uh, asked to visit a dying man in a hospital. He had aggressive bone cancer. And it was, was eating his life away. He's not a Christian. And uh, on the few occasions when this young pastor presented the gospel, there was no spiritual response. But a friendship formed. And through a number of visits, the pastor learned that uh, this dying patient was a remarkably uh, self-made man. That he grew up in Spain, and he was raised by a loving mom who diligently taught her son the truths of faith. And then he had to flee because of uh, uh, persecution in the country. He came uh, to America as a young teenager, uh, knowing no English at all. And he worked hard, and he studied hard, and he eventually went to college, and he went to medical school, and he became a highly successful medical doctor. Despite his earlier disadvantages, he became skilled and wealthy and a respected leader, he became more convinced of his atheism, and then came the cancer. 
In just a few months, the cancer destroyed the accomplishments of a lifetime. His body, once uh, kept in top shape by miles of daily swimming, was devastated. And when the young pastor visited uh, next time round, the despairing doctor confronted him. He said, I've taught, I've, I have treated depression all my life. That's been my job. But I have no answers for what I'm going through. And if your God really has some answers, then, then, then you can help me with the hell that I'm going through right now. Give me some peace if, I, if you can. And, and the doors just suddenly flung open for the young pastor to, to speak. And, and sometimes when you get a door flung open like that, it's like, oh, what do I, what do I say? What are the important words to say? What are, what are the steps here? What, what's the sequence of thought? And he hesitated, grasping for the right words. And then he stumbled forward, sharing who Christ was. And how Christ came to, to give us hope and purpose and eternity with him. And still there was no spiritual response. It seemed like it went past him. And little else was said that night. And the men uh, talked no more. But the cancer continued to uh, advance aggressively. Some days later in, in a labored scrawl, he wrote in Spanish the words which he had memorized years ago at his mother's knee. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the words of the Apostles' Creed. And then the note concluded in English with these words, Jesus, I hate all my sins. I have not served or worshipped you. Father, I know the only way to come into your kingdom is by the precious blood of Jesus. I know you stand at the door and will answer those who knock. I now want to be your lamb. The man who wrote these words never regained consciousness after another surgery that he was forced to have. So his physical life was lost, but his soul was one. All to say that God can change the hardest hearts. He can wipe away the darkest sin. And he must do it, for we cannot. Our God calls us to put aside all that we trust in, all that we take pleasure in, or have used to make ourselves worthwhile. He urges us to come to him with, as a helpless child and then promises us his kingdom forever. And when we call to him without trying to stand on our own accomplishments or goodness, but humbled by, the, uh, by his mercy for sinners like us, he responds. His voice is gentle and loving. His words echo our desires. He says, forever you are mine, forever you are mine. The kingdom of heaven is for humble ones such as you. And this morning, as a reminder, we see how tangible those words are when we come to this very table that we call the Lord's table. Uh, it's really very much about what this dying man confessed before he died. Jesus, I hate all my sins. I have not served or worshipped you. Father, I know the only way to come into your kingdom is by the precious blood of Jesus. I know you stand at the door and will answer those who knock. I now want to be your lamb. So the little piece of bread that you're going to take this morning is an expression of the body of Jesus, broken and battered for us. Jesus said, this is my body. Eat it, and as you eat it, give thanks for what it means. It means I gave my life for you. My body was broken and bruised for you. And when you just take that bread, just give thanks and say in your heart, I know, that, I know you did it.
for me to forgive my sin. And then when you take the cup, you'll be reminded that I gave my lifeblood for you. The blood that flowed out from my hands and feet and side, it was a healing blood. It was a forgiving blood. It represents my love and my forgiveness for you. The man said it so well before he died. I know you stand at the door and you will answer those who knock. I now want to be your lamb. So the cup represents the blood of Jesus. It's his blood, his life that transforms us and forgives us and gives us a new pathway to walk. So receive the bread this morning as the body of Christ. Receive the cup this morning as expressions of the awesome work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're going to pray. Mel Lee is going to come and lead us in a word of prayer. I'm going to invite the servers, if you'll come forward at this time. If you're still on the journey of uh, deciding who Christ is uh, in your life and you're trying to put the pieces together, uh, feel comfortable to allow the, the uh, elements to pass this morning. So let's unite our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you call us to come, to come to the foot of the cross. And Lord, and then you just wait for us. And Father, some of us here have 